Welcome to episode 1423 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer with Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? The same. So you wrote an article about a time machine on Wednesday, and you picked your six top destinations if you had a time machine that could only take you to baseball games in the future. Yeah, t- just to be clear, the sixth, the sixth, sixth is, is the to get trip. home. Yeah, yeah. So okay. You, basically, unless you're willing to to step off and live in the future, then the sixth is required to go. So it's uh, five. The frame was around five. Yeah. Did you have a lot of just missed options here? I want to hear about that. Also, I want to hear about whether you would actually take any of these trips if you could because <laughs> not sure that I would I would take the first one the first one you picked was game four of the 2019 series which is just a purely money-making venture yeah. you yeah. just go into the future you learn some stuff then you come back and you place some bets and you get rich and maybe you can place a bet while you're there too and you get to see some stuff but it doesn't spoil too much and it's just a utilitarian trip So that one, yes, but your next pick was Mike Trout's final game, and I do not think I would want to go go see Mike Trout's final game if I had the option to. Because Mike Trout's career is probably the storyline that I like best about baseball, at least the one that persists across seasons right now, and that would sort of spoil it for me. I would not want to see how it ends. It's interesting that you describe the first trip as utilitarian, because utilitarianism, of course, is the uh, philosophy that you should do that, which benefits the greatest uh, number of people and raises the uh, it increases the uh, amount of cumulative happiness in the world by as True. much as you can. And this is a purely theft-oriented <laughs> trip. Like it is, it, that one is for no reason other than to steal from people who don't know that you know the outcome of the yeah. game, basically. Well, uh, but the, yes, the good it is, thing you can do for humanity is limited is utility. because <laughs> your, your conditions here are that you can only go to baseball games. So you, I, you can't go to the true. future and find out how to save everyone's life and cure all the diseases and fix all the world's problems unless you happen to see them in the middle let's, of a baseball game. Yeah, let's just agree that we all want to go into the future to find out how to bet on baseball games so that we can donate that money to good causes. <laughs> All right. You would not see to me the the one no-brainer, the 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 easiest one for me is Trout's final game. That huh. one I have I'm working on it inventing a time machine now because it seems like such a good idea. And that's it's gonna be a one destination. That's all I want to see is Mike Trout's final game. Why don't you want to see it? It's the ultimate spoiler. That would ruin the next Spoilers are spoilers are a fiction, Ben. (laughs) Spoilers very rarely actually ruin a good story. I mean, I saw another podcaster make this point not long ago, but like the end of War and Peace is is uh, Napoleon loses, and (laughs) that is like legitimately a a crucial plot point that has existed for hundreds of years and that uh, had existed by like fifty or sixty years by the time Tolstoy wrote that book, and it it has zero consequence to your enjoyment of the the book i mean i i don't feel like it would cost me any first of all i don't think it would cost me any particular pleasure in seeing mike trout do whatever he's going to do so if you just game it out he's either going to have an all-time great career like he's gonna break a record or something and then now you get to focus on that you are like the whole point of I'm already well, focusing. <laughs> how much more could we focus on it we talk about it every day you could en- i think that you would enjoy it more if you knew that it was definitely going to be something that would break records and that hundreds of years from now it, it might still be important basically there are two reasons we watch sports right one is for the suspense and the other is to see 
just the achievement, just to see the like the best in the world at a certain task do that thing. Yeah. And like you can watch, like I've watched Usain Bolt run a nine five five or whatever he ran. The whole point of watching that race is not that you don't know how it ends. I would rather watch a highlight of that race than see him run now when I know he's not going to break the record. Anyway, I don't know. Am yeah. I convincing? I'm not convincing you, but I don't. <laughs> the spoiler does not bother me. But what really does bother me is the thought that I might not find out that like that I could die before his career ends. Yes. Um, and that I will never know how good Trout was. And I think that to some degree, it would be, uh, depending on what the outcome is, I, I feel like if it's a good outcome, I'd want to know so that I can kind of really enjoy it and revel in it and know I'm watching something that is, uh, you know, that great, as great as I hope it is. And if it turns out to be a disappointment, then I want to appreciate these years even more. And you can say that we do appreciate them. We talk about him constantly. But do I really appreciate him enough? Maybe I don't. Hmm. Yeah, I don't want to know. It's not like Simone Biles doing a triple-double or something where you just want to watch regardless, even if you know she did it because you can't believe that she did it, and you just want to watch it in slow motion and see how it looks compared to other people attempting to do that or not even attempting to do it because no one else can. It's a physical feat that is so remarkable and physics-defying that you just want to watch it over and over again. Whereas Mike Trout is just playing baseball, and he's playing baseball better than anyone else plays baseball. But for the most part, he's not having incredibly acrobatic feats. I mean, every now and then he does, but he just kind of gets more hits than everyone else does, and he's just uh, better overall. So I enjoy watching him play, but... Even among great players, I don't think he is the most riveting player we have. And so a big part of my enjoyment of watching Mike Trout is thinking, how good is he going to be? Is he really this good? Can he continue to be this great? Does that mean he'll be the best player ever? And if I knew now with certainty that he would be, not saying I'd stop paying attention to him, but I'd just constantly be doing the math in my head, like, okay, I know he ends up here, so he's just counting down to these final numbers that I know that he will have. And it's true that it would be sort of sad if if we died before we found out how Mike Trout ended his career, but I doubt that would be my last thought on this earth. (laughs) If I were about to be hit by a bus or something and my life's flashing before my eyes, is that my last thought? No, how how good is Mike Trout going to be? Oh, I almost knew, and now I'll never know. Probably not. So to me, this is a spoiler that would actually impair my enjoyment of the thing. I, I think you're right that spoilers are overblown, and if a thing is good then for the most part, you should probably like it, even if you know how it ends, unless it's so ultra-dependent on the plot twist that the plot twist is the whole enjoyment that you derive from it. And I'd still enjoy Mike Trout's career, but not nearly as much, because uh, right now it's just like I'm watching him walk a tightrope or something and just wondering if he can make it all the way to the end, except without the anxiety of (laughs) worrying that the person's going to fall off and die. Yeah, I okay, so a few things there. While it is, I I agree that just as it is not quite like Simone Biles, where you can pause and watch in slow motion and see the incredibleness of it. It's also not like Simone Biles, where when you watch it, you have this sort of sense of anxiety that, you know, she's not gonna that well, in this case, he's not gonna He's not going to land it that this that he's going to like fall or that the one time that you watch 
you know, this sport every few years, you're going to see a, a big letdown. Like baseball is not, you don't watch Mike Trout biting your fingernails for the most part. If mm-hmm. he grounds out, it doesn't materially influence his chances of, say, breaking the all-time war record or breaking the all-time home run record. You want him to have good years. You watch over the course of the year. Uh, but already there's not, I would say there's not like a lot of excess extra benefit of uh, the suspense. But when I die, if I'm on my deathbed i think that in fact how will mike trout's career end would be one of would be one of the things i think of (laughs) like so there's this line in fever pitch the uh, nick hornby um novel about soccer where he talks uh, the the character is is it i can't remember it's fiction it's not fiction it's non-fiction it's a memoir right it's his memoir of loving soccer pretty sure that that's right so when you said fever pitch my mind went in a different direction (laughs) yes uh you were thinking of jimmy fallon Mm -hmm. but this is the uh, book and so he talks about how uh one of the things that that makes him very anxious about death or that makes him very sad to think about dying is that in fact like there's going to be soccer seasons football seasons that he doesn't get to see and like so here's the here's one of the quote the whole point about death metaphorically speaking, is that it is almost bound to occur before the major trophies have been awarded. It really, I think, is frustrating to me to think that like when I die, all these things that I'm invested in are going to keep going without me and I'm not going to see how they end. Mm. I would really like to know how they end. I would die a lot happier if I knew how everything I'm invested in ends. And that goes for everything from a television show that I'm three seasons into to my you know my daughter's life uh and like happiness on the kind of more profound level but that definitely does apply to baseball I I think Nick Hornby says specifically like his great fear is that he's going to die in the middle of a season that he doesn't want to die mid-season if he's going to die at least let him see who won the you know English Premier League that year or whatever and I do feel that way about things that I care about in baseball, less so about seasons these days, but storylines and careers and things like that. And Mike Trout is the ultimate storyline that I'm invested in. And I have been invested in since he was in Arizona in rookie ball. um, Mm -hmm. When I started covering him, I went to his first high A game. Did you know that? No. Did you know that I actually, uh, he hit a batting practice home run into the the woods uh, behind the wall in uh, Rancho Cucamonga, and uh, I went out and I got that ball, and I had that ball for a really long time. I don't know where it is now. I think my nephew played with it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so anyway, Mike Trout, Hmm. I want to see, I want to know. I do want to know. It is important to me that I know. Yeah, I'm going to chance it, I guess. I would chance that I'm going to live long enough to see how his career ends or that if I die, it will be so sudden that I will not have time (laughs) to worry about Mike Trout's career. So the odds are in my favor that one of those things will probably happen. So I'm not going to spoil it, I think. I'm just enjoying it too much, seeing it in the moment. And the other ones you picked, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time deciding whether I would go into the future to see anything in baseball. One of the ones you mentioned is just to go to like 2099 just to see if baseball is still being played and what it looks like. And that one I think is a little risky because if there were no baseball, then I think I would actually care less about current baseball. Mm. I, I understand that 
baseball will one day end. Everything ends. So I understand that on some level. But I think that seeing it happen, seeing no one care about this thing in the not incredibly distant future, it's one thing if you go into the year 7019, which is another one of your choices, and there's no baseball then, okay, that's fine. But if there's no but baseball— But wait, why? Why? What's, well, the, what's the difference there? Well, I mean, who knows? Society and civilization and could be so unimaginably different then that it, it wouldn't bother me as much if there's no baseball. <laughs> so I feel like this, uh, I've been thinking about this with regards to how people relate to 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 climate change and to the to potential for for true you know catastrophe on a human wide scale uh, sometime in the future and i feel like most people if it were if they thought that it was going to happen uh, in a way that would really affect them then that would seem real and and then to their kids if they thought that the consequences were going to be to their kids then i think they would take that really seriously but people have been able to push it a few generations down in their mind and mm-hmm. think, well, that doesn't matter to anybody I know. But mm-hmm. I mean, of course, if you want your children, you you get so much happiness out of your children's happiness. And so you would not want them to go through worldwide catastrophe, right? Mm-hmm. But they are going to draw so much happiness from their children. Mm-hmm. And so they're equally going to not want their children to go through the pain and unhappiness of worldwide catastrophe. And then they are going to... And so, like, the 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 happiness doesn't actually disperse in any meaningful way. It is all with people they love. And I don't feel like there's necessarily any, like, real dilution through the generations. And so if you are saying that it would not that that the finiteness of the sport would not bother you if it were some thousands of years from now but it would in 80 where's the line where does it stop <laughs> being part of your your baseball when does it stop being the lineage of your baseball i don't know but if we're going to the year 7000 i mean i assume that almost nothing that we think about or care about right now will actually exist or matter then. So that just doesn't bother me so much. That's just so far in the future that who knows, we'll be on different planets and we'll be beings of pure energy. And I don't know what we'll be at that point if we're here, which hopefully we will be. But I think if you told me that it was going to end in 80 years, then I'd think, well, what am I wasting my time with this for? <laughs> Which I already think <laughs> sometimes. Cause... Wait, oh, okay. <laughs> let me ask you this. What if it were six years? That It was going to okay. end in six years. Would you feel like you cared hmm. more? Is there a point where, it, is this a bell curve? Yes, of, I think of... it is. It, yeah, if you told me this was the last season, then I'd be watching every game, probably, uh-huh. which doesn't really make sense. <laughs> probably. Well, it does in a sense because you're hoarding this finite True. resource. But whereas 80 years, you're not going to be consuming any of those games yes. anymore. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, if it were to end in the very near future, I mean, that would concern me, obviously, because I don't think we're going to lose interest in baseball in five years as a society. So if baseball ends, then that probably portends other terrible things happening. But I think, yes, I I would try to appreciate baseball in the short term. 30. Hmm. I guess that's getting to the point where conceivably it could just have become unpopular that's the thing that i think gets me if it ends because we reach a higher plane of existence or something fine if it ends because there is a global catastrophe 
that's bad, but I don't feel bad about baseball's part in that because everything will be disrupted. But if it ends because we just collectively decided that we didn't care about this thing anymore, then that would make me feel like I'm wasting my time on something that within my own lifetime, people would look back on and and say, why did we even watch that? Or not even look back (laughs) on because it's so meaningless. So well, that, the hard thing, especially, is the hard thing, especially, is that you are a chronicler of this thing. That like too, you, yeah. If it right, if if it's uh, alive in hundreds of years, then I'll feel like people of that time might look back and see something I wrote, the way that I look on newspapers.com and I make fun of <laughs> what someone wrote in 1920 or whatever, or use it as an example in an article I'm writing. So that would make me feel good that something I wrote survived, or at least that I'm covering something people will still care about in a long time, and that it will be part of a historical record that is still of importance to some people at that point. And so it would be pretty demoralizing to me if I went forward in the future and just realized, oh, this thing that I spent all this time on, it's just insignificant now. And I probably realigned my priorities. Ben, it's insignificant now. Well, of course it is, but <laughs> but it's insignificant because everything is insignificant, I guess, in all the ways that we distract ourselves. But if it's insignificant compared to even the insignificant things that we do as diversions along the way, then that would really make me feel bad. I have twice in the past couple of days had the dispiriting experience of trying to read an old article of mine and having all the videos and or screen grabs be mm, dead. Yeah. And you have just put in my head the the possibility of anybody in 80 years reading anything I wrote. I've never <laughs> thought that. I've never thought about it. Like I've never it's not that I've rejected the notion, but I've never thought about it. Mm-hmm. And then I, you put it in and I thought, oh, that would be really great. That would be nice. And then I yeah. realized it's just going to be dead links all around. <laughs> yeah, it'll just be like that, <laughs> the, the image where the image doesn't load. <laughs> yes. You can see it's just a <laughs> as little it, icon. As it is, all the stuff, so the score, all the annotated box scores got purged about mm. three years ago. Most of the stuff at the register got lost in the redesign so like the text is still there but uh, none of the images are none of the links are and so yeah uh, i'm i'm gonna be really heartbroken when when it when someday bp uh, like old bp articles don't load anymore a bunch of your gremlin pieces right don't load now no i think they do they do now they were offline briefly and everyone was worried but they came back Uh oh anyway the future Reading this uh, made me think that I do not want a baseball time machine that only goes to the future. I want the one that goes to the past. That'd be great. And I'd take one that can go anywhere in the future, but I don't think I want a baseball one. I don't know that that would bring me joy. Did you have any rejected choices that you almost selected? No, not really. There wasn't that much I wanted to see. Everything I wanted to see sort of fit into these these categories of like, well, I'd like to see what humanity is like 5,000 years from now. I would like to see whether Jeff and I's prediction about baseball having 80 years left (laughs) turns out to be about right. And if it does or doesn't, what sorts of changes were made to uh, try to forestall that. I would like to see the trout one. That's an easy one. And then the other two were very specific. So otherwise, not really. Like, it's only trout, for instance. I don't have that much eagerness to see Kershaw's last start, for instance, partly because I don't really have a desire to see Kershaw be bad. 
I, I great. I'm going to say something out of context again. <laughs> <that> <laughs> I don't want to see Kershaw be bad. I am somewhat curious, though. Like, I have a curiosity about seeing Mike Trout be old. <laughs> and um, so while you were talking about, I was thinking about Hank Aaron, who my kind, I wasn't alive during his career, so I might be misreading this. But my sort of sense just from consuming a lot of, you know, baseball biographies of the time period and reading articles on newspapers.com from the time period and and, and all of that and, and just seeing what, you know, everybody's kind of legacies are individually is that like Hank Aaron, he was not like a celebrity at the same level that like Mantle and Mays were at the time, mm. my sense is. And I think if people knew that they were watching the all-time home run champ, the home run king, throughout that time, it would have been like, an, obviously, he would have been a, the, the biggest star in the game right there with, with Mays and mm-hmm. Mantle. Yeah. But because he was just sort of plugging along hitting 40 home runs a year, yeah. it snuck up on everybody. And that was a part of the reason that I wrote that piece about Cody Bellinger when he was mm-hmm. two months into his career. Like, just... Just pretend that you're, you know, go with it until it's been disproven. Just assume everything you're seeing is the is going to go down as the greatest thing you ever saw, <laughs> and and let yourself be, let yourself hope a little bit. And I don't know, maybe maybe I don't need to see Mike Trout's final numbers to feel like something incredible is happening, and everybody already does. Uh, but uh, to me, knowing uh, just how great it gets m- does not ruin the experience of watching it it focuses the experience of watching it anyway Mm -hmm. so hank aaron and then yeah i don't know no i didn't i didn't you know how it goes ben you 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 think of the ones that you want to write and then Mm -hmm. you don't keep thinking (laughs) yeah (laughs) you send it in yeah yeah well we're doing emails i have one other thing to say do you have anything no nothing at all okay well i just wanted to mention that you darvish learned a new pitch and learned it very quickly And Hugh Darvish really, since he appeared on the scene, he's been known as someone who throws a ton of pitches. That's been part of his appeal is that you can make the GIF overlays of Darvish throwing pitches and it looks like it's five different pitchers. So no one in baseball needed a new pitch, probably less than Hugh Darvish. And yet Hugh Darvish just learned a knuckle curve from Craig Kimbrell in a week, evidently. Hugh Darvish asked Kimbrell about his curveball grip. I'm reading from Jordan Bastion's MLB.com story about this. About a week ago, began toying around with the pitch and is already using it in games to collect strikeouts. He walked up to me the other day and he was like, hey, I've been working on that, Kimbrell said on Wednesday at City Field. I was like, cool. (laughs) I didn't know he was going to go out and throw it. I thought that was pretty cool. So he has thrown evidently 10 different pitch types this season it's always difficult to classify these things but he now has three different curveballs he's got the slow curve and he's got the regular curve and now he's got the knuckle curve and these all come in at different speeds of course and then he has what the two seam he's got the four seam he's got a slider a change up splitter he has the three curves he's got the cutter and a hard cutter I guess that's two different I, I don't know whether because this is the thing that we know about you Darvish we're making distinctions for him that we would not for other people I mean maybe other people throw multiple kinds of curves and we're just saying because it's you Darvish and he's known for this oh it's 10 different pitches but it is a pretty amazing ability that he seems to have here 
And he has had a a really remarkable turnaround this season. Just forget about the pitch types. He has just suddenly morphed into Greg Maddox, where I think he had the highest walk rate in baseball in the first few months of the season. And then since July 1st, he has the lowest walk rate in baseball. And he just went like a record number of consecutive starts without a walk. And he just finally walked a guy and he's looked like a, a different pitcher. But the ability to pick up pitches is something that really fascinates me because if you told me that a pitcher had that ability that he could just, you know, steal one of the best closers of all times pitch in a week and start throwing it in games and he already had 10 pitches, I'd think, oh, he's probably the best pitcher in baseball, right? But He's not the best pitcher in baseball. He's been a very good pitcher, and of course he's had injury issues, and that may be part of why he started slow this year. And I know he's started some new visualization techniques too that he credits for some of his success where he'll go over the guys he's going to face ahead of time and picture striking them all out. So I don't know exactly what it is that has caused this turnaround. seems like a, a confluence of factors. But my main point is that he throws all the pitches, and you'd think that for a pitcher... That would be about the most valuable thing that you could do, but maybe I'm overrating it. Maybe it's just better or just as good to have three very good pitches as it is to have 10 serviceable pitches. I I assume all his pitches are good. I mean, maybe they're not all good. If you just start throwing a new pitch and it's a terrible pitch, then that doesn't really add to your luster. Anyone can throw a a bad new type of pitch. But with Darvish, it seems like at least when you watch them, that they all move a lot and they're all pretty pitches. Yeah. I also am always fascinated and mystified by pitchers adding pitches, especially when like this, they just, they, they learn it. And then four days later, they're throwing it in major league games. And I have never been able to figure out whether that's because like they are just that gifted at picking up pitches. Like that is just something that they are that good at. That's their particular genius. Or if Mm -hmm. it was that they, their particular throwing style, their particular hand size, their particular grip and release point and everything else was all ready for this pitch all along. And they had just never Mm -hmm. been introduced to that grip or the right instruction. But I, I agree. I mean, I don't know. You did a book about learning how to throw new pitches, and it was the, um, in, in a lot of ways, it was the most in-depth I'd ever seen anybody go on the process of learning a new pitch. It doesn't feel like there's any universal rule, though. Like, some pitchers are incredible, and they never learn something so simple as a change-up, mm-hmm. and then other pitchers yeah, like they just like they they're 36 and then they learn a pitch and suddenly mm-hmm. they're really good. And you think, did you never try that pitch before? <laughs> Was it the grit? Is it that only Kimbrel's grip worked? Had Darvish tried this with 30 other pitchers who throw, you know, knuckle curves and just all their grips were slightly different and it didn't work. The other thing about it is that you'll hear pitchers sometimes talk about how throwing one pitch hurts yeah. their 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 throwing of a different pitch that the pitches sometimes the pitches can bleed into each other a little bit and then you know their slider gets weaker when they're throwing their curve uh, or a cutter um mm-hmm. sort of a thing or that it just becomes a little bit harder to to repeat each pitch if you have too many pitches too many different kind of motions or release points or whatever it is and so maybe darvish's genius is that he has this 
like particular cognitive ability to hold 10 different 10 yeah. different um physical acts in his mind and keep them separate from each other mm-hmm. yeah or it could be just that he has some facility with his hands and he's able to visualize things and he just has some tactile skill that most people don't have where he picks up things very quickly and that's not to say that someone else couldn't learn it but we learn things at different paces and some people learn things certain things more quickly than others and then because they learn it more quickly and it's easier for them to pick up maybe they stick with it more so than the other person who has to kind of get over the hump to feel comfortable with it And it could just be that he is more aggressive, like his threshold for what constitutes a workable major league pitch is lower than most other pitchers. Maybe other pitchers would pick up this pitch in four days and throw it, but just not feel comfortable with it. Even if it were a pitch that they could use, they would just think, well, I've gotten this far with these other pitches and boy, I'm right in the middle of my major league career. And not only that, Darvish is in the middle of an incredible run right now. (laughs) And you'd think most pitchers would not add a new pitch to the mix in the middle of the kind of streak he's having. They would think, I don't want to mess with success right now. And yet he is tweaking things and trying things he's never tried before, even in the middle of maybe his best run of pitching ever. So I don't know what that says about him, whether it's just that he is more willing to try things than most pitchers and because you hear all the time about pitchers who mess around with things on the side and they throw things in the bullpen but they just don't take it out to the mound when the game begins and Darvish does and so I don't know whether that's because he actually is able to develop new pitches more quickly than anyone else or whether he's just more willing to try things. It's just so weird to think that like these pitchers are in the majors And one of their pitches is good because they've spent 30 years refining it, throwing it constantly, constantly managing it and tweaking it and and working on it and being coached at it and and uh, and refining it. And then their other pitch they picked up like while playing catch on accident or like a new teammate happened to show up and it's like, you should throw my pitch. And they're like, "Okay." (laughs) how many I don't did you say this? How many how many of these pitches is Darvish throwing? Well, 10? 10 a start? Well, I think... Man, imagine. Imagine if you could just like start (laughs) throwing a pitch at a major league level in major league games like that. Oh, you mean how many of the knuckle curve did he throw? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. How many of the knuckle curve did he throw? Yeah. I'm not sure. I'll see if I can figure that out. But I'm looking. There's only eight pitches listed at Brooks. And Mm -hmm. so that means that some of these are being... Lumped together, presumably yeah. lumped together. So, yeah. By the way, you said that he he had what did you say he had a record for walkless starts or something like that? Yeah. Just to just to clarify, <laughs> he had the record for starts without a walk while striking out eight or more batters. Ah, okay. He was the first pitcher since at least 1893, so he definitely had a fun fact. Mm-hmm. The record for starts without a walk, not counting opener Diego Castillo last year is Bill Fisher with 11 in 1962. Greg Maddox had two stretches of nine and a stretch of six. Uh, Darvish is tied for 38th, which does include a couple of openers, actually. So he's tied for slightly better than than 38th with five in a row, which is really good because mm-hmm. you're right, considering that he that has been the thing 
that he struggled with his his whole career, really. Right, yeah. (laughs) Well, he's kind of incredible. So I want to take my time machine three years into the future to see a U Darver start and see how many pitches he's thrown then. I realized why I think I've realized why I want to see Trout's last game too. This is another thing. This might be the thing. I don't want to watch Trout decline. I don't Mm. I, I dread the the years where I I said this many many years ago in fact but like the thing that really keeps me up is that in a few years it's gonna hurt to watch him run and I don't think I can I just don't want to spend six years watching Mike Trout lumber you know Mm -hmm. even if he's good even if he's like a really dynamite player I'm a little scared to see him decline Mm -hmm. but I do want to see him be old I want to see him like at full maturity um because he's just been he was so young when i you know when we started watching him and and in a way he's been such like being a kid being kid-like has been um a constant to his personality even now even as he's reaching kind of his his you know possible peak years and um and i'm curious to see like what's mike trout like when he's 40 what's what they get like what's he look like when he plays and i think one game is probably enough for mm-hmm. like I can handle one game, but I'm sort of dreading like the three, four, five years where he's sort of slow and yeah, and there are days where you you just feel like there's there's uh there's it's it's a mere remnant, and so this lets you skip past the decline and appreciate the the retirement speech, yeah, I guess that's true, knowing where it ends up, maybe when you st- but then does it make it more painful almost to to see it happen, knowing where it's gonna end because you can't tell yourself well he's just having a down year or something you've seen the end you've seen what it looked like and you know that there's nowhere to go but down and so maybe it would be almost more painful to watch the decline knowing where it ends maybe maybe but maybe not i have a little note written uh at the desk i'm at this is my one piece of like wisdom that i'm i try to always look at and i notice it about once every two years because that's the nature of notes that you put on your desk but the note says the glass is already broken and it is important to remember that like the destruction of a thing that the that the you know deterioration of a thing is baked into the thing and that you you can't hold on to it forever you can't you can't delude yourself into thinking uh that you know you're gonna have this this thing that you value forever and ever and ever you have to be prepared to lose it because that is the nature of the thing and i am not prepared for that with mike trout i <laughs> i cannot like my my brain is in denial i i see the mike trout that that we have right now and i think that's forever but if you saw the final thing then i think that it would really it would reinforce to you it would really convince you in a in a way that is healthy for us that that no there is an end and that's okay we don't have to cling to it we can we can appreciate the this this time that we have watching him all right we should answer a few emails i suppose step last <laughs> okay step last Glass is already broken, by the way, is from Achan Cha, a Thai meditation master. 
He says, you see this goblet? For me, this glass is already broken. I enjoy it. I drink out of it. It holds my water admirably, sometimes even reflecting the sun in beautiful patterns. If I should tap it, it has a lovely ring to it. But when I put this glass on the shelf and the wind knocks it over, or my elbow brushes it off the table and it falls to the ground and shatters, I say, of course. When I understand that the glass is already broken, every moment with it is precious. Okay. All right, stat blast. Ben, since 1961, there have been something like 1,600 players who have debuted and gone on to bat at least 2,000 times in their career, which okay. is to say had had lengthy careers. What would you guess is the most common career stolen base total? The hmm. most common. Not the average, not the median, the mode. Huh. 1,431 of these players, by the way. I'll say 33. 33. All right. I thought that the answer would be zero. And so that's what this stat blast is about. Because a couple of days ago, Wilson Ramos entered a tie game in the 10th inning. Game still tied. Bottom of the 10th. Runner on. He singled. There were runners on first and third. His run was worthless, of course, because the runner on third would, would end the game if he scored. But because there was only one out, I think, he had some slight value uh, as a base runner because he could be turned into an out. But because his run was meaningless, the defense did not hold him on. Wilson Ramos took off on the first pitch, reached second base without a throw. The announcers got into a discussion of whether this would be a defensive indifference or a stolen base. They thought it would be defensive indifference because the defense was not holding him on and his run didn't count. But... Uh, officially, it went down as a steal because the defense chose to not contest the play, but they were not indifferent to it. They could now no longer turn a, a double play. There was a strategic advantage to Wilson Ramos in this close, in this tie game. So he got a steal. Wilson Ramos got a steal. That was his first stolen base of his career. Hmm. And so Wilson Ramos went from being very high on the list of most played appearances with no steals to being very high on the list of uh, career uh, of career played appearances with one steal. And I thought, well, which one is actually, I don't know, rarer? I, it seemed to me that zero was probably the most likely career number to land on because it made sense. It just did to me. That's what it did. It seemed to me that zero. you were more likely to have zero than to get one and stop on one or get two and stop on two or get three and stop on three. And that they would get progressively rarer with each number that you go up. So I looked to see what the most common number of stolen bases for a career is. And you're not right. What did you say? 37, 33. 33. You're not correct, but you're much more correct than I am. There were 12 players who had exactly 12 stolen bases in their career, only two got shut out entirely, two with zero. The most common is a tie, six and seven are the two most common with 27 each. And actually, I'm sorry, I didn't notice this. Strangely enough, the most common is 20. Uh, with 28 players, so one mm. more than six and seven. But uh, it does, it sort of kind of reaches its peak in the high single digits for the most part. So it builds up to the high single digits and then kind of tapers off a little bit. But zero turns out to be actually quite common. So Wilson Ramos did, in fact, run himself uh, out of history a little bit. Wilson Ramos was at that point the longest career with no stolen bases. He was a record holder, although I'm only going since expansion. So I don't know, maybe there was someone before him in fake baseball. He So he was uh, historic, but now he is merely second 
in most career plate appearances with one stolen base. Steve Balboni is the champ, and Wilson Ramos will pass him, if not this year, early next year, assuming he does not get a second stolen base. So his stolen base, of course, was very... Well, actually, just very quickly, the two players with zero are Johnny Estrada and Chris Schneider. Does that combination mean anything to you? Catchers? Yeah, but uh, they were teammates. They were they hmm. shared the catching position in Arizona in 2006. <laughs> uh, so the only two players in the last 60 years to go an entire career without stealing a base were in many meetings together. <laughs> it probably didn't it probably didn't come up. This was early in Snyder's career, um, later in Estrada's, but this is one of those things that the players have no idea that anybody's going to talk about this because they don't even know that they've done a thing. Estrada never attempted a steal. He is the only player in history to never attempt a steal with that many. And in fact, only four players in that in this time period have gone a career without a caught stealing. The others are Jan Gomes, who had three steals, Wellington Castillo, who had five, and a 1960s catcher named Bob Tillman, who had one, but Estrada never attempted one. So zero stolen bases, zero caught stealing. Snyder was caught three times. One was on a botched squeeze. One was... Uh, as the back runner on a double steal. And then one was in a tie game where there was a lousy hitter up with two outs, singles hitter up, and he tried to to go and get into scoring position and he failed. But you'll notice that t- the other two were flukes, just like Wilson Ramos's was a fluke. Uh, so Snyder's was a fluke, the botch squeeze, and the back runner on a double steal. Uh, so I wondered if these other players like Ramos, who had one stolen base, were all flukes as well. And the answer is not really. So Stephen Vogt had one stolen base. It was a very straightforward stolen base. It was the fourth inning. He was on first base. There were two outs. Game was tied. He took off. He made it. Stolen base. Nothing mm-hmm. weird about that. Daryl Ward had one. Very straightforward. Mark Hill, straightforward. L. Ron Hendricks, straightforward. And Bob Tillman, the aforementioned, was also very straightforward, although his was a steal of third. So that is five of one, two, three, five of ten players with very normal single stolen bases and then we have ramos total fluke steve balboni was the trail runner in a double steal and they did not throw after him and so he got a stolen base that he you know barely deserved mention on and then the last uh two others ryan hannigan's was a lot like the ramos play except that his team had already taken the lead this was the top of the whatever extra inning it was and there were runners on first and third and Hannigan took off and the defense just ignored him and Mike Redman was essentially the same as the Hannigan play it was first and third except his team was already up and they just ignored him the last one is Charlie O'Brien I have actually written about Charlie O'Brien before because I love Charlie O'Brien's single stolen base unlike all these other people Charlie O'Brien had one stolen base but he was caught 10 times (laughs) he went one for 11 In his career, he just kept going for it. Uh, So his stolen base is very amusing to me because it was basically meaningless. His team had taken a lead and was up by three runs in the bottom of the eighth inning. And Mike Maddox, the the pitcher, was actually batting. And so like this was just kind of like the Reds had blown the game. They were frustrated. And O'Brien's on first base. And Rob Dibble was the pitcher. And O'Brien just took off. And that was it. They didn't, I don't know. I don't even know. Is that a fluke? I guess it's probably a fluke. 
because mm-hmm. the defense what didn't care about him. But on the other hand, it didn't really accomplish anything. It's just a weird stolen base that he had so that he could have one. So those are the one stolen base players of which Wilson Ramos is now one. Mm-hmm. Okay, good one. All right, question from Dave. In a Gleeman and the Geek episode, Aaron Gleeman interviewed Senior Vice President and General Manager Thad Levine. He asked Levine if there were any plans to keep Byron Buxton from injuring himself. Levine mentioned two things, one of which I found interesting. He said that they, presumably the Twins front office, have talked about adding extra padding to their walls and extending the width of the warning track at Target Field. The padding thing is boring, but extending the width of the warning track? Now I'm listening. An ESPN article by Doug Glanville from 2012 called The Warning Track is Useless mentions that the warning track has no size restrictions and argues that, well, the warning track is useless. Without regulations, I can't help but wonder, cue bad Jerry Seinfeld impression, why not make the whole outfield out of the warning track? A completely dirt outfield would surely increase your home field advantage. You could stock up on ground ball pitchers and fly ball hitters and really lean into it, unless outfielders sprinting and sliding on dirt would just hurt all of them. So what do you all think? Do you have any hot warning track takes? Is it useless, or could it help save Byron Buxton from injuring himself? Did you read this Doug Lanville article? I have it open, but no, I have not yet. I read it, and yeah, his point is kind of two or threefold. One is that because it's not standardized, you don't really have a sense of like how much warning you're getting. The other is that in the moment when you're running on a full sprint, yeah. I guess, uh, uh, well, I'll finish this thought. When you're running on a full sprint, you don't have time to to even adjust. Like You don't even notice sometimes that you have changed. Uh, mm-hmm. He also notes that they're not all the same material, and so you don't even, like some of them, you notice more than others, but it's very, because it's not standardized, it doesn't really give you much extra predictability. He talks about how they do these little drills in spring training where a coach will like throw a ball over your head, and then I'll quote Doug, We would run back, count the number of steps we had before the wall smacked us in the face, and then store that number in our muscle memories. The idea being that when I'm in a game, if I measure that, I could take three steps before hitting the wall. If I measured that I could take three steps before hitting the wall, I would say to myself, one, two, three, wall. But as he points out, like you're running different speeds. Besides the fact that the warning tracks aren't standardized, you're you're running at different speeds. You're running at different angles. And so there's just not really going to be any consistency between like what you do in that drill or even what you've done in previous games and what you do in the next one. And the Mm -hmm. third thing I think he says that uh, I think I remember this is that like some players, the warning track just freaks them out. Like instead of like giving them a little bit of control to get to the wall, they basically overreact to it. Uh, and then that can cause other problems. I, I think that I remember that uh, mm-hmm. being in here. So I uh, was supp- I was interested in reading all of those details. I thought, oh wow, that makes it that makes outfield much harder even than I realized. I was surprised that the conclusion was so far as they're basically worthless. I would still have thought, not having done it myself, I would have still thought that you would notice that you're running on it. I would think that you would sort of notice that you're running on dirt now instead of grass and that it would give you a little bit of a heads up. But Doug was pretty adamant in this article, like basically worthless. Like he keeps saying like pretty much (laughs) worthless. Yeah. Well, Wikipedia says that the average width of a warning track in MLB is 15 feet. 
It also says citation needed. <laughs> but if we take that at face value, that's, I mean, if you're an outfielder running at full speed, would you have, t- it seems like you wouldn't really have time to adjust because what is that like? a stride maybe so it seems like you just wouldn't even be able to moderate your speed at all if if you were going full out at the start of it by the time you send the signal to your feet to slow down you've hit the wall already it seems like but i would think that outfielders have some sense of where they are in relation to the wall usually that they don't rely solely on the warning track to tell them because, again, it wouldn't leave enough time for them to do anything about it. And so you could make the warning track wider. I guess you could do that. That's the obvious solution. If it's too narrow right now to adjust anything, then make it wider. I don't know, though. Would that actually change, or is this just kind of an ingrained outfielder behavior that some guys prioritize making that catch more than they prioritize preserving their body and that even having the warning track there might not necessarily change that behavior i i don't know i don't know with buxton whether it's that he doesn't realize that the wall is so close and that he's going so fast or whether he just kind of doesn't care so there's probably a bit of both there Yeah, Doug also talks about how you don't really watch the ball while you're running. You put your head down and then run to the spot you think the ball is. And so you you do get a chance, presumably, to kind of see with your own eyes where the wall is. You don't see, I don't know, it doesn't feel to me like they're, considering how many outfielders play how many balls that are at or over the wall, it doesn't feel like there are very many injuries that are actually wall-related. There are a few, for Mm -hmm. sure. But not that many, and a lot of the ones that there are, it isn't about not knowing where the wall is, but about sort of like, you know, you you plant against the wall, or yeah, like you say, you maybe go too aggressively into the wall, but knowingly, knowing that it's there because you feel like that's what you have to do to catch the ball. It's very, very rare that I can pull up in my memory examples of players just like running into a wall like 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 frying pan, you know, style. Mm-hmm. So maybe it just isn't that necessary. Maybe the problem as as is often the case with a lot of injuries is that uh the demands on these players from their teammates their fans and on themselves and the incentives for them to you know to out to out grit their opponents because that's such a big part of winning this ultra competitive super high skilled high intensity game uh forces them to do things that are likely to lead to injury Mm mm-hmm Okay, question from Luis. I was thinking about those Charlie Manuel Phillies teams and remembered Raul Abanez was said to have had the second half of a Hall of Fame career. Is Nelson Cruz the current Raul Abanez? Who are some other contenders? And this is something, is this something we said? It sounds like something we talked about at one point. But Abanez, now that I look at it, I mean, age 30 on, he was worth about 20 wins above replacement, which is, well, maybe that's the second half of a Hall of Fame career. It could be if your 20s are really good, but it's maybe a little less impressive than I was thinking based on second half of Hall of Fame career. It's not like Adrian Beltre after 30 or something, who was probably way more than that. So Banyas was great, obviously, after that age, and he really didn't have a good season until he was 31 or I guess you know he had his first like 
above replacement level season when he was 29 and then he was just kind of average for a while and he just kept chugging along so it, it was really that he didn't decline after that point more so than he turned into a superstar so that's the deal with Ibanez. I, I guess the best comp Cruz is obviously a, a very good one Cruz is 38 and he's been worth almost 30 wins above replacement in his 30s so I guess he just turned 39 so that's very impressive and I remember writing a story about Nelson Cruz and how he just kept chugging along at Grantland (laughs) so that was at least four years ago and he is still chugging along so Nelson Cruz is a good one I think a good one is Ben Zobrist yeah yeah a little too early though well, uh, like he was, uh, he, it depends where you want to draw the line. He was an MVP candidate at 28. And that was the first time he'd been good at all. Yes, that's <laughs> so right. Yeah. That was he, completely out of nowhere, really. And he, yeah, he only had 500 career plate appearances at that point. And, and the 227, that half of those had come at 27 when he was very good, but had just kind of come up and just been discovered. So, yeah. so Zobras doesn't really fit the, the same curve, probably. Well, I mean, second half of a Hall of Fame career, he he did have that, right? If if he had had a a normal age whatever to age twenty seven, then we probably would be talking about him as a Hall of Famer right? because he's he's only at like forty five career WAR, but uh, thirty three of that came at thirty or, or later. So I see, I see what you're saying now. Yes, yeah. okay, yes, Ben Zobrist. All right, well then, in that case, let me revise Ben Zobrist too good. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's yeah. So who else? Uh, so I think, think of, that uh, there's maybe a pretty good case here for Edwin Encarnacion. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I'm gonna look up to see what the average Hall of Fame career is from 30 on. So mm. Hall of Famer. So we've got the problem is that this is gonna rope in a bunch of like managers. Like mm. Miller Huggins is gonna be in here. <laughs> All right. Yeah, okay, this is a pretty good list, actually. All right, so we've got about 150-ish players in here. So the 75th is 27.6 war. So Mm -hmm. Ibanez is not quite there. No. He's not far off, but he is not quite there. But Zobrist is. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see here. Robinson Cano... Ian so, Kinsler. I mean, yeah, I mean, Cano had are, the first half of a yeah. Hall of Fame career too. Encarnacion is twenty three point two, and he's only thirty six, so he's mm-hmm. he could just about get there. Yeah, uh, Cruz. Cruz was like, th- what, what was Cruz at twenty nine point four? Yeah, so Cruz is a Hall of Famer from mm-hmm. thirty on. You know, yep. Hall of Fame thirties. Mm-hmm. So to answer this question, yes, Ian Cruz, Kinsler. Well, also. Kinsler was a stud in his 20s, though. Yeah, that's true. He's just kind of close to a Hall of Famer Yeah, overall. exactly. So to answer the question, yes, Nelson Cruz is the answer, and Edwin Encarnacion could also be the answer, but Raul Ibanez was actually never the answer. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, maybe one more here. This is from Zach. If we want to preserve framing from robot umpires, why not just give each team a limited number of challenges per game? I was actually just talking to someone about this idea earlier today. Let's say nine per team and one each per extra inning. If the electronic strike zone can call pitches quickly, then there's no reason that it should take a long time to overturn calls. 
let's say you give the teams 10 seconds to challenge the pitch and then it takes another 10 to 15 seconds to see if the call was correct. If that time frame can happen, it would allow some of the more egregious calls to be overridden, but still keep most of the borderline ones and also allow catchers to be able to frame pitches and keep their impact on the game. What am I missing from this? Tennis is somewhat similar to this and it has worked out pretty well. You know, anytime you this is a problem that some people have with the current system, uh, which is anytime you give the team a limited number of challenges, you're basically saying that you're acknowledging that there are a whole bunch of bad calls, but you're limiting how much you want to fix it. You're not yeah. saying we need to keep it how it is. You're not saying this is tradition. This is uh, the human element, or even that we think that these umpires, which I think is, I've kind of increasingly come to believe that home plate umpires actually are calling the strike zone that the players want, that their inexactness is in many ways a feature. So you're not making any of those arguments. You're going, yep, we know they suck, (laughs) but we're only really willing to fix some of the problem. And I think that then you just, everybody goes, well, wait a minute, why not 10? (laughs) Why not 11? And it becomes very hard to make a logical argument for why there should be any limitation other than, of course, the pace of play, which is resolved by robot umps. And so Mm -hmm. inevitably this ends up in robot umps. Yeah. I guess if you're going to have a challenge system with replay, then it's consistent at least to have another challenge system. But it's funny when the replay review system was instituted, We talked a lot about challenges and there was a lot of resistance to the idea of challenges as opposed to just getting the calls right and having someone who was watching the replay overrule the umpire. And the big question with that was, well, how do you actually functionally play the game? Because no one's going to know if any call is actually going to stand. So do you just wait for a while after every play? Do you just keep playing? And then suddenly someone on a headset interjects and says, nope, go back. So that would be kind of awkward. I don't know exactly how that would work, but I agree with you that philosophically speaking, uh, if we're going to try to get the calls right, then we should try to get all the calls right. So I I am not really pro-robot-ump, but if we are going to go with robot-ump, then yeah, I I guess the only thing is that if there is some kind of malfunction or the system is miscalibrated and it's very clearly wrong, you'd have to give the umpire authority to overrule it. I suppose that would probably just take care of it and you wouldn't really need a challenge system for that because the umpire would know. I I guess it would take some gumption to overrule the robot ump if you are the human ump, but if it were one of these really clear situations where something is just going haywire, then presumably the umpire could step in and say something about it. So I don't know. I, I guess I like it in that I like preserving framing and some elements of the human ump system, and this would get rid of the very bad calls, but there aren't that many obviously terrible calls these days. It's a lot of borderline ones, and you'd probably, you'd use all your challenges is the thing, right? Mm, That's true. You would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you give them 10 challenges, it's like umpires, at least currently, according to how we define the strike zone right now, I think umpires get about 88.5% of calls correct. That's according to a, a baseball perspectives definition that I used recently. Sometimes it varies to low 90s or something, but 
you're not getting 100 called pitches per game, but you're getting, I said what the average was on a recent episode, I think it was 60-something or 70-something, so you'd be getting several pitches rung per game on average, more than that, so you would be using most of your challenges in every single game, and at that point it kind of defeats the purpose yeah and then some will say well then it adds an element of strategy do you want to use them now or do you hold them for later in the game when there might be higher leverage i'm pretty i don't know i'm not that eager to have that calculus going on but i think that probably it would be hard to tell your pitcher uh, that you had the ability to get him the strikeout that he thought he deserved but you were saving it for extra innings yeah so i think that you would end up they would use them for yeah the first more or less the first nine that they could use mm-hmm. probably yeah, yeah that's maybe eight fun. maybe they'd use eight and then save one for but then mm-hmm. you'd you'd you know oh man and then you'd use your nine which you'd be perfectly justified in using your nine because those are probably nine bad calls that you could overturn and then the the ninth inning would come along and you wouldn't have them and a game would still turn on a missed <laughs> call and everybody would be even more upset because why aren't there more challenges yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't like it i don't think I, I don't know. I w- implement it, and then I'm going to travel into the future and see how it's working. <laughs> All right. So I will travel into the future and talk to you next week when it arrives. But that is it for today. All right. You know, it occurs to me belatedly that of Sam's five future destinations for his time machine, four were dates, and only one, Mike Trout's final game, was an event. So if events count, if you can tell the time machine that you want to go see a certain thing instead of going to a certain day, then that does open up a range of possibilities. You could tell it you want to go see the first 21 strikeout game, the first five homer game, the most improbable comeback that will ever happen, and so on. That would be a bit more tempting for me, but I think I probably still wouldn't go. Do I want to see the first 21 strikeout game yes but i don't really want to see it if i know i'm gonna see it because half the fun is the suspense as you're watching not knowing whether it's gonna happen plus you lose the suspense of all the other 21 strikeout game contenders that come along before someone actually does it when you're doing the math and looking at the pitch count and the strikeouts so that sort of saps some of the fun from all the attempts that fall short so i still don't think i want a baseball time machine but if i could choose an event rather than a date that would affect my choices actually you know one I think I would go to is the first MLB game for the first woman player. I don't think there'd be any downside to seeing that in advance, and that would be really cool to be present for, and it'd be fun to cover the story of that player as she came up and to know that you should pay attention to her because she's going to be a trailblazer. Anyway, I'm not going to try to tell Sam what the rules of time travel are. He's the one with the time machine. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Following five listeners have our already signed up, pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going, and get themselves access to some perks. Doug Nazarian, Eric Zaborzin, Tony Allen, Jonathan Baker, and Paul Radke. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are already a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can buy my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Thanks to those of you who have left reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. I hope some more of you will in the coming days and weeks. And we will be back with one more episode this week. It'll be me and Meg, and we will talk to you then. I need you more.